0: All right, welcome back, beautiful people. This is Forever Young. I'm Dr. John Lakey. and I'm Dr. Payman Danielpour. And thank you so much for spending time with us. Hopefully, we are teaching you something. Uh, we today are going to keep you at cutting edge, latest science. Um, some of the things can be a little scary. Some things are new products on the market, and so today, what we're going to do is we're going to touch on three different topics. The first one is going to be something that just was released by the FDA. And so we wanna clarify some things. Um, this is due to, this is breast implant associated squamous cell carcinoma. So a can another cancer other than the ALCL that was uh, talked about with uh, textured implants. But this one's a little different, and so uh, we'll touch on that and maybe dispel some myths. We'll go over some details, uh, uh, and we'll obviously keep you updated as more evidence uh, is made available. The second topic we are going to talk about, and we've alluded to this before as in our previous podcast on scar management, um, but the idea is... Early post operative microneedling uh, and tr- really treatments for post surgical scars. So, it, you know, we'll talk about how uh, the paradigm sh- is shifting from treating later to treating earlier. And then the third, a new introduction, a neurotoxin, a very, uh, you know, Botox like neurotoxin uh, that is going to last longer. So for those of you who say, gosh, it only lasts a couple of weeks on me or even two months, you know, a traditional Botox or any of the neurotoxins we have last three to four months. This one obviously is going to last longer. And so we'll talk about that. So without further ado, I know that this is uh, your specialty. So we can kind of banter back and forth about this uh, breast implant associated squamous cell carcinoma. And you may ask us
1: number one, where we're getting some of this data. Um, So everything we talk to you about is evidence-based with the exception of our own anecdotal stuff that we do in this office or what our own experience has. But if we're talking to you about data, it is data from either this journal right here, which is called the Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery Journal. We call it the White Journal. It is our uh, basically our... uh, guideline and all of the studies that have been done over the years. And it is a way for us to see that what we're doing works or doesn't work. Um, also, with that said, we are a part of a bunch of different societies. Not only are we board certified, Dr. Lakey's double board certified, we are board certified by the American... Board of Plastic Surgery. And by being board certified, we also get notifications regularly via email, via mail, on anything that's going on in our field. That includes what we're going to talk about right now, which is anything that has to do with breast implants. Now, I know for a lot of you out there that think about plastic surgery, one of the first things that pops into your head is breast implants. Um, Why not? Obviously, plastic surgeons do breast augmentation, but we also do cancer, breast cancer reconstruction. So I I want you to think about what we're going to talk about right now in in two ways. Number one, um, we do cosmetic breast augmentation, breast augmentation with lifts, but we also do breast cancer reconstruction, which includes using breast implants. So we've been using it for years and years and years. And it's our way of giving female uh, their femininity back after their breasts have been taken out due to cancer, which is very important for the psyche, um, for their well-being. Um, and and it is a very um, useful way of reconstructing a breast is using a breast implant. Um, so f- I know there's a lot of people out there that have had a lot of issues with breast implants. We know that they are devices, but we also want to talk about the fact that they are used... Um, really for a lot of reconstructive purposes. So this has been very helpful for a lot of people over the course of many, many, many years. So we don't want to just take breast implants and just throw them out of the market. We want to make sure that they're the best that they can possibly be. Now, with that said, September 8th, we received notification from the American Society of Plastic Surgeons. What this notification said, they came out with a statement that said, basically, that there's a new safety communication about something called squamous cell carcinoma um, and also various lymphomas that we've talked about in the past, ALCL, that they've found in the capsule that surrounds a breast implant. Now, what is squamous cell? How many have seen it? Is this something you should be worried about? And we're going to go over all of this Mm -hmm. now. So, I know you looked at a a review. So let's talk about this review and the paper that showed how many have been seen and when the first case was discovered and why they're talking about it now
0: is why didn't we talk about this three months ago? You know, it is very interesting, um, you know, because I looked at straight from the FDA website and we were talking about the number of cases around. So, obviously, uh, ALCL was in a very particular type of implant that was textured implants, uh, more commonly uh, administered in Europe than here, um, and so the treatment was really just to remove the implant uh, with the capsule, and you're essentially you're treated. Squamous cell carcinoma is a little different it's very rare but potentially aggressive epithelial based cancer that um, you know can spread rapidly and uh, the issue and why this is being raised now um, you know is a little interesting to me because the first reported case was in 2015 um, and I'm speaking right now just for breast augmentation we're not talking about the number of cancer related procedures involving implants. But you have to imagine. In the last year, we've probably done three hundred thousand breast augmentations. All right, in the in the U.S. And so, um, when I tell you the reported number of cases, uh, you know, obviously I'm not downplaying it in the least. Uh, but I am trying to give you a proportional size because there are sixteen reported cases worldwide. And, and the number of breast augmentations in the U.S. was 300. Just
1: in the U.S. was 300,000. Yes. So worldwide, I would say it's significantly more.
0: And that's not even including all of the breast cancer-associated surgeries uh, with breast implants. So, um, you know, it was very interesting. Um, you know, whoever had presented it to the, the FDA, they presented all of the cases at once. So they presented 10 new cases uh, because they have been reported, as I said, since 2015. Very rare, uh, and that's why case reports are written, because they're these one-off, oddball cases uh, that are, you don't know if they're necessarily associated. And so that's why we can't necessarily say, all right, uh, the squamous cell carcinoma is due to the implant itself. Um, but you know, uh, the FDA has to look into it, see if there's an association, because there are so many breast implants that are out there. I will tell you this, Um, in almost all of the cases that were reported, so I'm looking at one review, and there were six different reported cases. Um, They were all found in their uh, late 40s, all the way up to 81. The implants were all placed in the 70s and 80s. There was one case where uh, this was in China, and it was placed in 1995, In 2014, so almost uh, 20 years later, is when you start seeing the symptoms. So, again, these are um, when I'm looking at every single one of these cases, the minimum amount is 20 years of having implants in place and onward. So It begs the question, you know, is it just, are these complications from having your implants in too long? Well, it's possible. Again, 16 cases out of the hundreds of thousands that are performed annually. Um, And this is 16 cases of of all time so far. This isn't annually. So really what I'm trying to say, obviously, we know that this is extremely, extremely rare. The one thing that we can say, all of the symptoms, uh, you know, were pain and induration, which means swelling. So a change in the size of the implant, it, it gets larger, um, and uh, you know, unfortunately, these even though these are well or moderately differentiated uh, squamous cell carcinomas, most of them don't have a very uh, happy outcome uh, because this can be a very aggressive cancer. By the time it's found, usually it is spread to the lungs. Um, Treatments are mastectomies with, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, radiation therapy and things like that. Uh, But follow-up is minimal because uh, most of the patients uh, expire. So obviously, when this is brought to the FDA, uh, it is going to raise some concern because it's not like it's easily treated like the ALCL that caused a big stir. And even so, some of the lymphomas, there were less than 30 cases uh, of those lymphomas, um, and less than again, less than twenty cases of the squamous cell. So obviously, more information needs to be gleaned. Uh, needs to be brought forward, and uh, we'll glean information from that. Um, you know, this isn't something to cause a panic with everybody who has breast implants. This does not mean that you have to remove your implants. Again, most of these cases. 20 plus years of having your implants in place. If anything, uh, it's an argument for the fact that you should change out your implants every 10 years. And that's what the company recommends. All of the companies who make breast implants, their recommendation is that you change out your implants every 10 years. So, you know, again, you've alluded to it before when we had an entire podcast on breast augmentation. The idea is it's a foreign device your body falls you know forms a little capsule around it almost like a balloon and it's essentially separating your body from this implant. sometimes that uh, implant that, that little balloon that forms around thickens with scar tissue, whether it's due to infectious processes um, it, we think we know, but uh, no one has a, a final conclusion on what causes capsular contracture, but sometimes that little capsule th- turns into the thickness of the rind of a cantaloupe. That's where we start running into issues. Sometimes it calcifies over time. You know, I've taken, you both of us have taken implants out that have been in there for 30 years and it looks like a thick eggshell. Um, and I think that's when this, these can cause some types of issues. So um, if anything, what I gleaned from this article is the fact that you should continue to uh, change your implants out every 10 years and you will likely not develop any of these complications. And here's what
1: you should look for if you have breast implants. Um, first and foremost, um, what what you see mostly with something like this, which is incredibly rare, but ALCL presents very similarly as well, is unilateral swelling or, or any type of redness in the area. So redness, swelling, or seroma formation. Now, Go to either the person who did your breast augmentation or go to someone who's familiar with doing reconstructive procedures or any type of breast revision procedures because anyone who's doing breast revision procedures using doing capsulectomies understands that the capsule needs to be moved and sent to a pathologist. So now, there are different Tests for this. Now, if you're worried about this, and if you are a resident or another plastic surgeon that's listening to this and you haven't heard about this, this is what you need to send the fluid or the capsule out for. Okay. If you're suspecting squamous cell, I want you to send it out for CK56 plus P63 plus flow cytometry for squamous cell cells or keratin. Okay. If you're obviously for BI, uh, for, for breast implant associated ALCL, you look for CD30 plus cells or ALC, negative flow cytometry positive for T cells. Those are the big tests. When we do this, anytime we send out capsules, we have them looking under the microscope to make sure that there are no cells that are going to be epithelialoid in nature. That's going to be a squamous cell type. Okay, most of the time when the, this capsule is taken out, you see more Things that, are, that that look more like either muscle or scar tissue, not epithelial type. So this is something that that needs to be, especially um, if it's long standing implants. Now with this squamous cell associated uh, breast implant uh, associated squamous cell, the implants were smooth or textured. So it doesn't look like it's from from what we look at. Is I don't think it's a implant thing. It just may be the duration. So if there's anything you could take away from the initial reports that we're getting is make sure that you see your plastic surgeons. um, The way I take care of my patients is for the first year, I see them every three months. And then every year after that, I see everybody. I see patients from 10 years ago that I did breast augmentations on because it's the best way to keep up. You go see the person who did your colonoscopy every 10 years. You go see, you get a mammogram every year. So these are things you need to do. You've got a foreign Mm -hmm, body inside your body. Make sure you follow up with your plastic surgeon just to make sure everything's okay. A removal and replacement of implants is a very simple procedure. Honestly, if there's nothing wrong, I did one for someone the other day under local anesthesia. I don't normally do it, but I did because she was older. Mm -hmm. Um, And this can be done and therefore you can avoid this. now. Again, as soon as there is more data on this, we will tell you. But regardless, whoever's doing a breast augmentation for you should discuss all of these risks prior to having this operation. Mm -hmm. Now, do I think you should run and take your implants out? Absolutely not. (laughs) Don't do that. Because again, Dr. Lakey started this podcast by talking about how many breast augmentations they're done and how many cases of this Rare, incredibly rare type of cancer that's being found. You know if you think about the amount of accidents are out there every time you get in a car and you still drive, it would behoove you to ever drive again if something like this really bothers you. Mm-hmm. So just be smart about it. Make sure you get everything checked out. You, a little ultrasound can show fluid around an implant that can then be analyzed to make sure there's nothing else wrong. Um, just be you know, cognizant that you do have a foreign body and it needs to be cared for.
0: Yeah, and the, and the, the only people I would say, listen, if you are concerned and you've had your implants in for 20 plus years, then consider getting them removed and replaced. I mean, this is a, a, an easy fix, probably one of the easier <laughs> surgeries that you perform. And, uh, you know, I think you, you, then you won't have to worry. Absolutely.
1: We hope you're enjoying this episode. If you'd like more information about our practice, you can check out our Instagram. It's plasticstocks P-L-A-S-T-I-X-D-O-C-S. On Instagram for more information, Dr. Daniel Poor and I will be
0: back after a quick break. second on to the second topic something that's a a, you know for us a little little more positive is uh, treating scars and uh, kind of that whole shift you know it used to be for us that we'd say all right we know that a scar is remodeled for up to a year And uh, so we know that we can always tell a patient, by the end of the year, your scar is going to look much better than it does now. We do have some devices and treatments like the Embrace Scar Therapy, things like that, to help how a wound heals in the beginning to ensure that it heals well at the end. Um, But at the same time, for our, you know, the, the general train of thought of a plastic surgeon was we wait as late as possible and then we can start treating scars six months later, a year later, kind of see what the body can do and then go from there. Well, this recent paper, which you're about to talk about, uh, kind of changes that, that entire paradigm.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, literally when I tell you forever, we say, we're not doing any intervention to your scars for at least six months, most of the time for a year. Like you said, what we told people always was let your body do its thing. Now, interestingly enough, does everyone need to have this intervention? No, but what I want to say is if you're one of those people that keloids, one of those people that um, we've done scar revisions on because we've done a surgery and they've formed poor scars, then intervening early is the way to go. So in this the last um, um, uh, uh, journal that we just received Uh, plastic reconstructive journal that we just received. Basically, here is what the study showed and what what they did. They did 25 patients who underwent surgery, and that scar is treated with three treatments of minimally invasive percutaneous collagen induction. Now, what, what does that mean? It just means microneedling, okay? Microneedling is just poking tiny little holes and causing collagen induction. And then the scar assessment was measured by the Vancouver Scar Scale, Patient and Observer Scar Assessment Scale, and Global Aesthetic Improvement Scale. And these are just scales of,
0: of how scars look to, to the, the average eye, basically. Mm-hmm. Okay? And usually, if it those, they have independent observers. So, it's a random plastic surgeon who has not seen the patient. And they'll look at the photos and say, all right, this scar looks closest to, you know, and they'll range them from one to 10. So it looks closest to this number. And then after treatment, they'll say it looks closest to this number. Then they compare the difference and see if they're statistically significant. And what they
1: showed is that the ones... So so there were ones ones that were done six to seven weeks, and then there were ones that were done further out, okay, 14 weeks. And they showed that the post-surgical scars that were treated early, okay, had no adverse effects. And they showed the ones that were treated early... Actually looked better and had improved aesthetic outcomes compared to the treatments that were initiated later. So, what does that basically make us think? Is that before you let that collagen production basically run amok or become very disorganized? Because again, we know that if we take a biopsy of a hypertrophic or a or a keloid scar. The collagen is very disorganized and it's not laid down properly. So imagine if you can do something to to make more collagen production in the area and have it more organized from the initial period. Now, obviously, the reason we wait six weeks is we want the scar to be closed and healed prior to treating it. But I think this is a great way to prevent that keloid from forming prevent that hypertrophic hyperpigmented scar from forming
0: yeah it's interesting um you know even in my case yesterday i facelift uh the submental incision the one that's under the chin i actually when i was lasering the face lasered over my closed incision just because uh you, you know looking at the trends to treat earlier and earlier i've seen a better outcome um you know when you kind of when the entire area is kind of, is healing at the same time as opposed to one single incision, so it's interesting. Uh, I love that this paper came out and um you know provides us with some new guidelines and obviously it's one paper. It's not a full meta-analysis or a review, but it kind of does um allow us to think a little bit and say, all right. Uh, maybe you can head an issue off of the pass by starting uh, treatment scar treatment earlier. So, I think this would be a, you know a great adjunct for us. Um, you know, for those of you out there that have had surgery in the last six weeks, three months, get in here, get lasered, get microneedled. Uh, you know, anything to treat the scar earlier as opposed to waiting uh, f- till the end. And I think
1: it won't, it wouldn't hurt if you did the microneedling and then put some silicone strips on top of it too. Mm-hmm, definitely, because we used to, you know, the the old teaching or the current teaching is inject the keloid and then put some sort of compression dressing on it. Mm-hmm. Um, normally, silicone strips to prevent that that
0: disarray of collagen production. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no, not at all. I think it's perfect. Uh, you know, now we can we can hammer a scar with, um, you know, many different treatments. And the idea is instead of waiting till the very end, let's do it early. Absolutely. And, you know, there's, there's algorithms on how to treat scars. We've had previous
1: podcasts on how we treat multiple scars, how we treat keloid scars, hypertrophic scars, there's lasers. But it was interesting because it was in our last, Uh, edition of the plastic and uh, reconstructive surgery journal and it just kind of made us kind of rethink everything we've been taught Um, because sometimes you know you keep doing the same thing over and over again the same way well let's change it and see what happens Mm -hmm. so we're going to start treating some of our of our patients that have poor kind of wound healing in the sense that they they don't heal as well as some of the other ones because we close all our own incisions. So there's no other factors that make it like, oh, this person healed worse than the next person. Because again, if you're doing the exact operation on on the same person, one heals well, the other one doesn't. Most of the time it's just because of the way the patient heals. Remember Mm -hmm. that, not everyone heals the same. So the ones that we think are gonna heal a little bit worse, let's kind of treat it a little bit earlier.
0: Why not? Sure, genetics, nutrition, uh, you know, skin type, quality, and color. I mean, there's so many different factors that go into it. So, you know, it, we we hear that so often. It's uh, a friend who comes in for a, a mommy makeover, an abdominoplasty, or something, and she says, "My friend, it, you know, she healed so well. Why am I scarring?" Well, you know, there's so many different factors, variables that go into it. That you know, the idea is each person is completely different. Now, I think uh, we've we've uh, kind of kick the dead horse here. Um, I think what we'll do is we will go over into the new release of the uh, newly FDA-approved neurotoxin called DAXI. This is DAXify. And it's DAXO A. toxin A. Um, you know, I'm going to take a step back. And I'm going to say, look, when we think of neurotoxins, which I believe you know, and and again, I'm talking all Botox-like uh, neurotoxins. Um, I think that if you look at the, it's one of the best drugs we have for reducing or slowing down the size of aging, ha- hands down. But if you were to look at developing a brand new product that does the same thing, lasts much longer, uh, the third key scenario is that you don't have any complications, or there's an easy antidote, and um, you know I I don't know how you feel about this. I think this is an amazing new product. I think that there's definite potential, but we have to be careful with it, especially with all the non-board certified injectors. And uh, you know, it's like you can go to Earth Bar and get uh, you know Botox. But the idea behind any new drug is we are going to see, it's just like any new procedure that's being, uh, uh, you know, you go to a conference. It was so funny because we always heard from our attendings. You'd go to a conference and there would be a new procedure telling you a brand new way of doing something. Everyone would run out to do it and the complication rate would soar because- you didn't know the anatomy well enough as much as the people describing it, or, you know, you just had, there was a learning curve to it. I feel like this particular product is going to be very similar, um, but I want to get your uh, your your take on it. So, so interesting. What are we talking about? We're just talking about Botox,
1: basically. Mm-hmm. So, so there are neuromodulators um, on the market that are the, the most common household name is Botox, botulinum toxin. And what does Botox do? It basically um, paralyzes muscle, so to say, or numbs the area of the muscle that contracts to make wrinkles. Now, we have talked about Botox in length and other podcasts, we love it. Um, we will say this over and over and over again, it is the number one, uh, probably best way To slow the progression of aging and wrinkle formation. Um, If done properly in the right hands, you can get a very natural result. And by looking at many studies over the years, and we talked about something earlier, the twin study, one that had Botox and one that didn't, you can easily really slow the progression of aging, meaning slow wrinkle formation and make those wrinkles not become as deep over time. Now, with that said, Currently in the U.S., I'm not talking about worldwide, just in the U.S., there are four different types of neurotoxins or neuromodulators, Botox, botulinum toxin, then there's something called Dysport, there's something called Xeomin, and there's something called Juvo. All four of these things do the exact same thing. When I say it, exact same thing. Now, with that said, some work maybe a little faster. Some work maybe a tiny bit longer. But generally speaking, all four of those products are supposed to last for three months and work within a week. more or less, right? Now, there is a new product by a company called Revance Therapeutics, as Dr. Lakey said, called Daxify. What's the big difference? The big difference is that when they did... This big study, it shows that basically the median duration, so for most of the people, it worked for six months. For some, it worked up to nine months. So what are our thoughts about this? And how is this good? Is this bad? Do we want it? Is this something that the patients are going to want? It's a very loaded question.
0: Mm -hmm. Listen, I always say... If something works well and you can make the results last longer, it's amazing. If something doesn't work well and the results last longer, uh, it's going to be painful. So he, my thoughts are this. I think on the average, it, when you come in, obviously, for those of you listening, I think you have to understand that it's going to be a more expensive drug just because you know it lasts much longer. So instead of getting Botox twice in that period, sometimes three times in that period, you're gonna get it once. Sometimes this may work for people who are uh, Botox resistant. So you know, I myself use Botox. It lasts four weeks. I use Zym. Uh, sorry, I've used Zym It lasts less than that. I've used um, you know Evolus uh, p- a product Juvo, which we absolutely love, and it, it tends to last six to to seven weeks. When this comes out, you know, now that it's out, we're going to be able to uh, uh, treat someone for up to nine months. So obviously, it's going to be a little more expensive. This is where the average injector really has to pay attention to the unique musculature of every single face. When we first start using Botox, they put up a muscular diagram of the face and they say, these are the points that you need to hit. But what you don't realize is you can't inject the same person in those you know 10 little dots okay so that's why it's so important to make someone give you expressions to move the muscles because really this has to be injected into the middle of the muscle belly so i have a feeling that when this product is you know mass distributed that we are going to see you know let's say a a dropped brow so there is no antidote There's nothing I can give you to reverse the issues associated with this. Let's say one side is given more than the next. You can still get touch-ups of of Botox. The problem is if uh, there's an untoward effect, you are stuck with that for six to nine months. So again, I'm not talking poorly about it. I think what it needs, you know, really what I'm trying to stress is that you have to go to an experienced provider. Because without that experience where you're changing the pattern, uh, we're going to have some disasters here coming up in the next uh, few months. Yes, and, and interestingly
1: enough, I like seeing patients every three months mm-hmm. um, because you get to see them. They, sometimes they they there's other things they want to chat about. Most of the patients that I inject Botox in are my surgical patients too, so I can check up on their scars or I can check up on their results. So in a way, it kind of keeps that that doctor-patient relationship going as well. Now, for those people that really don't have time, it might be really great. Um, it's interesting because it it's good and bad in a lot of ways. So I think that we'll have to use it to see. Um, it is very interesting because if this could have been done by the other manufacturers, they would have done it. But I think there's a part of that 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 three-month and how All of them work for three months except for this one. That's interesting, in my opinion. Mm. Um, And again, do we inject people and they're very happy and, and they don't come back for three months? All the time, all the time. I mean, we've been doing this for a long time. Botox is something very matter of fact to us but it's because we know the facial musculature and we know our patients really well. But if that first patient that comes to you that you don't know, and maybe you gave a tiny little bit too much somewhere and dropped a brow, it's a problem if it's six to nine months because there's no anecdote. That's what you said earlier.
0: Yeah, I don't know that I would uh, offer it to a brand new patient. Uh, You know, I will say this. Obviously, these are two multi-center, randomized, uh, controlled trials, but placebo r- tr- trials. So, the you know, the data is definitely good. Um, but I'm just looking from a practical standpoint. The idea is if you're a new patient coming to me, you are not going to get this product. This is going to be where we test out one of the others first, assess your musculature. You know, how many patients do you have That one time you've injected them, it's been absolutely perfect. The next time you inject them, uh, you know, there's some little uh, movement in an area. The third time you inject them, you've dropped a brow. The fourth time has been absolutely perfect. Very frequent. And so you use the same pattern. You know, the interesting part is, not that we use the same pattern on everyone, but what we do is we take notes on the pattern we've used for that patient. So if I use a recurrent pattern and get a, a, a different result... Well, uh, you know, you could always say, oh, maybe you're a few millimeters off. Okay, maybe, I don't know, you had an off day, you you didn't inject where you normally would. Or maybe the product was a little more dilute uh, in one area versus the next. Okay, well, maybe that can happen as well. Um, maybe it's just how someone reacts. I mean, so the idea is, if you've got a patient that is, uh, you know, the results are all over the place, this is definitely... Not going to be a product for you. Let's say you get Botox every four months on the dot, and it's, you've never had an issue. Uh, you know, you get the same amount each time. Well, you're the perfect candidate for this because it's just going to last longer. For me, I see. You know, I love this in areas where we're not necessarily as concerned about movement. Mm-hmm. I think this is going to be an amazing product for hyperhidrosis or. Uh, uh, you know uh, you say uh, uh, for bruxism for grinding Amazing. teeth you put that in the jaw you know it, again we're not it's not a changing your your uh, the your the muscles of your face that actually mm-hmm. make expressions but you're you know you're stopping grinding a teeth for six to nine months yep. Um, The other is you stop uh, uh, excess sweating in the armpits for six to nine months. Mm -hmm. So, and for those of you who, you know, it's interesting, I'll use Juveau or Botox in the armpits that last six to month, six months already. Yes, maybe this is going to last a year or more. So I do see a, a clear benefit in some areas. I just think for all you, you know, if you are a practitioner listening, I definitely would uh, throw up your guard for a little bit and just be extra cautious. And for those of you patients, if you're hopping around from doc to doc because you feel that one botched you, the next one was okay, the third one dropped your lid you know, you have to be very careful because your musculature may be a little tricky. And so I don't know that this is going to necessarily be a a, a, a product for you. And guys, it, does this mean that we're going to have this in our practice? Probably,
1: yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. We, we have everything. We we love to be the practice that has at all, and give you options, and talk to you, and and, and and really educate you, and make you understand, here, this is the things that we have. This is what we like. This is what we recommend to you. Um, and then you can take, a, you know, you can make an educational, really you know, good concerted decision um, after you get all of the facts. Um, you know, it's, it's we're going to try to do a podcast like this every so often and we bring some data and go over journal mm-hmm. articles. It's kind of my journal club for us. Um, and just to kind of tell you what's out there in the news. Every time we get more news about anything else that's on the forefront of what we do, we will bring it to you um, as as fast as we can so we can educate you so you can understand what's going on.
0: Yep. Love it. Oh, listen, I hope you guys have learned something today. Um, You know, those three things. So again, uh, breast implant associated squamous cell carcinoma, extremely, extremely rare. All the patients were, you know, had their implants in for 20 plus years. So Um, I don't know that we all have to come running taking our implants. I think that's a little ridiculous. Um, The second thing is we are now shifting to earlier treatment of post-surgical scars. So the idea is for, for those of you who've had scars within the last six months, get in here. Let's start treating some of those scars to make them look better. And the last thing, Daxify, great product, can have several amazing uses. Gotta be careful with it because there's no antidote. Uh, I thank you so much for listening to us. Uh, you know, again, we, we really enjoy uh, doing this and we, we enjoy the feedback as well. So please send us your questions. Otherwise, again, this is Forever Young. I'm Dr. John Lakey. And I'm Dr. Payman Danielport. You can listen to us on the Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts,
1: or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Peace. iHeart Radio Forever Young is a Cavalry Audio Golden Hippo production. We are produced by Brandon Morgan. Josh Windish does our editing and mixing.
0: Payment and I serve as executive producers along with Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger.